Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. I wanted to offer a little bit of perspective as we face this coronavirus pandemic. It is a disaster that has no modern parallel. Even some of the worst events that have happened, like natural disasters or terrorist attacks, happen in one place at one time. But this is a health threat hitting the globe all at once and will affect us in many profound ways for some time. For more on this endurance race with no clear end, we speak to Brian Walsh, future correspondent at Axios. There's really no press in a week to go back to, at least not within our modern memory. Like We may want to go back to traumatic events like Hurricane Katrina or 9-11, but the important thing to remember there is those events were geographically limited, limited by time. You know, they affected the people who were in the disaster area or around New York, obviously, during 9-11, but this is truly global. There's no real place to escape both the direct effects of the virus itself, eventually, as it continues to spread, and certainly no real place to escape the social distancing measures that have to be put in place to combat that spread. So that global nature is really something we haven't faced. I mean, if you go back all the way to the Spanish flu pandemic, surely there's similarities there, but it's a very, very different world, much more globally interconnected, much more higher standards of healthcare, so we expect more. So what we're in for both, I think, however long this actually takes, and then the impact that we'll have following it, it's not something we have any experience with. You mentioned in your article that something instructive for us could be going back to World War II and how we operated then. Tell us a little bit about that. I think that really World War II might be the best example you can go back to. And and that's not so much because of the disease itself, but for the total public mobilization that the response to World War II really required the American public. Obviously, not just the millions of Americans who were drafted or volunteered when the service and actually fought and they died, but those here at the home and what we had to do in terms of changing our day-to-day lives, that we had to deal with rationing of public goods, of gasoline, of food. Even here in New York City, where I live, We actually had to dim out the skyline of the city to reduce the risk of ships being picked up by submarines, actually, during the war. And that lasted for three or four years, and it was totally transformative. And while the public did get behind that, it wasn't quite as easy as it looks back in retrospect. I mean, it took effort. It took fighting to to really get to that point. But that's kind of what we need to deal with. And, of course, what it really requires us right now mostly to do is stay at home, not go out, don't be part of a chain of infection, But that's going to be hard because it's really going to require us to give up most of the things we think of as daily life. It seems like the economy is going to suffer greatly because of this. You know, a lot of sectors are closing down and suffering because travel restrictions and all that. So what's next? What are we looking toward? The only sort of global sort of disaster we kind of have that that sort of is is like this, other than a big war like World War II, is actually a big global recession, something that spreads around the world like a contagion, really impacts us, changes daily life. The difference here is that it's going to be incredibly immediate. You're not just talking about the unwinding you get during a downturn, a slowdown. You're talking about just demand, jobs, businesses essentially being vaporized over the next few weeks as people stop spending money, stop going out, or stop being able to do anything, really. It's hard to really even prepare for that. I think just what you're seeing from the Trump administration with some of the measures they've talked about over the last day or two, talking about sending out checks to Americans is giving people $1,000 is a testament of just how extreme that's going to be. You're going to really need to float people to keep them going. And while we're only seeing the beginning of that, that's going to really be going hand in glove with the speed of the coronavirus itself. 
you know, this one-two punch that that's going to be hard to endure, I think. And that's very different even than 100 years ago when you didn't have a global economy that was so connected and so quick to get sick, essentially, when something like this happens. And I want to read the bottom line from your article. It says, there's no escaping the public pain to come. We're just beginning an endurance test that has no clear end. And not to alarm anybody, because the vast majority of cases do experience mild symptoms if you have COVID-19 and all that. But this is serious. You know, we have to practice all this social distancing to help mitigate that spread. And, you know, we're looking at the healthcare system in America here. People are talking about a ventilator shortage that could be coming This is one of those things, as you've been saying, kind of how when we operate on the global level like this or when something's affecting us that way, you know, we can't just necessarily borrow stuff from other countries because they're going through just the same exact thing. Exactly right. I mean, this is not, again, like a a hurricane where you can send aid from the rest of the world, the rest of the country, tell people out or shelter them. Everyone's going to need to be looking after their own needs while sort of doing their part for the public. And I, you know, I understand that people, it takes them time to fully get that because, Absolutely right that the vast majority of people will probably not really face direct health threat from this virus. So, yeah, I can get why it takes time to realize that, but it really does require that sort of coming together. And this is the endurance test I talk about because it is simply a certain amount of public pain. It's going to vary from person to person, but we're all going to have to undergo some of it. And that's where the test will be of us as a public, us as a whole country, really us as a whole world for whether we can endure that because it's going to take a lot of time. You know, we don't know how much time. It could be a matter of weeks. It could be a matter of months. I mean, some of the upper limits go beyond that, which is really hard to contemplate. But that's what we have in front of us, a marathon race that doesn't have a clear finish line. And we just have to keep running in the meantime. Brian Walsh, future correspondent at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Amid this health crisis, election 2020 is still on its way. Joe Biden has increased his delegate lead in the race for the Democratic nomination for president. Biden swept the three states that voted on Tuesday, Arizona, Florida, and Illinois. This all makes Bernie Sanders' path to the nomination very difficult. For more on this, we spoke to Julia Manchester. She's a political reporter at The Hill. I think it's just the margin by which Joe Biden is winning is very telling. I mean, if you look at a state like Florida, a very big state, um, it was a state that Hillary Clinton did win in 2016. So I don't think the Sanders people were relying too much on it. But in 2016, you saw some pockets of Sanders blue or progressive blue and maybe North Florida, some more working class areas. This time around, it seems like the whole state really, or close to the whole state, was very much for Biden. Very similar to story in Illinois and Arizona, Joe Biden just sweeping those. So what we're waiting to see is how he does in terms of the delegate count. However, I think Sanders could potentially hold out because we did see some criticism from his campaign and some supporters of his campaign for Florida, Arizona, and Illinois to go ahead with holding their primaries after Ohio decided to postpone their primary. And then, of course, you have Georgia and Louisiana postponing their primary. So I think it's going to put the party in a bit of a difficult situation because they want to get the primary wrapped up as soon as possible. But at the same time, there's a number of voters in different states who have yet to be heard. And then you have Sanders, who probably wants to see all of the results come in from those states before he drops out. It's all about the delegate count. At Right now, Joe Biden has over 1,100. Bernie Sanders has slightly over 800. We've been talking about coronavirus, COVID-19 a lot. And it really is an impact there. I think Bernie Sanders' campaign manager said Sanders is going to reassess what's going to happen with his campaign and his followers. But he has some time because so many states are canceling or postponing their primaries. 
He's got like three weeks before anything happens. And even that little bulk of states that will be voting, very few delegates there. Very few delegates there. And I think the response to coronavirus is giving him some time. However, I think that window to maybe try to win over some voters with the coronavirus response has really passed. I mean, I think you saw Joe Biden present his coronavirus plan, and it was widely praised. It was very much, these are concrete solutions for what we need to do now. Going forward, he recommended bringing in the military to get hospital beds, lots of concrete near future plans from Joe Biden. But when you heard Bernie Sanders speak about the coronavirus, it was kind of just saying, well, this is why we need Medicare for all. Now, we did give a fireside chat on Saturday night and address that issue. He's addressed that issue in his digital rally ahead of Tuesday's primaries. He had that rally on Monday where he addressed the issue. But you saw it seemed like Vice President Biden had a much more robust plan. And I think Biden definitely has an edge up on him in this and that Biden dealt with a very similar situation, clearly not on the scales we're seeing now, but he dealt with the Ebola crisis in 2014. He dealt with swine flu in 2009 and 2010. So this definitely played better for Biden, not saying that the virus plays well for anyone, but I think this gave Biden an opportunity to really hone in on his crisis management executive skills, if you will. I think it was last week, maybe a couple of weeks ago, some of the polls had showed that the majority of people do trust Joe Biden more in a time of crisis like this, to handle a crisis like this, than they would Bernie Sanders. So that could definitely be helping him, at least in this front. Let's talk really quickly about demographics. Joe Biden obviously doing very well with black voters. Latino voters are starting to come around. But one that he really still needs to get a better foothold on is younger voters, which a lot of them do like Bernie Sanders. So that's the next big thing for Joe Biden, at least. And you saw Joe Biden last night and his address from Delaware really try to appeal to Sanders' supporters and maybe even young people as well. He said, quote unquote, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. Talked about the need for a comprehensive health care system. Talked about the need to address income inequality and climate change. So he is definitely handing an olive branch to that side of the aisle because he definitely knows that he needs young people. And although the Obama coalition definitely included young people, we're not seeing the same numbers of young people in the Biden coalition this time around because the newer voters are very much flocking towards Bernie Sanders. So I think you're going to see Biden continue to try to wrap his arms around some progressive policies. There's a 2005 bank bill that Elizabeth Warren supported, and she came before the Senate to talk about it then, but Joe Biden was against it. He has since come out and said he supports it. So he's definitely trying to come around to some of these progressive policies. And I think by doing that, he can be able to maybe create a better relationship with an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. And then from there, they can work on you know how to improve Biden's standing among younger voters. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Finally, for this week, we'll talk about COVID-19 and kids. We know that older people are more at risk for getting severe symptoms. But what about the children that are getting sick? Studies have shown that children can contract the virus at the same rate as adults, but the symptoms are not as bad. It all could come down to a person's underlying health conditions. While the immune system is fighting the virus, it could also be exacerbating these underlying health factors. For more on how the virus affects kids, we speak to Megan Multaney, staff writer at Wired. There have been some recent analyses um, looking at cases coming out of China 
that have indicated that children under the age of 10 um, account for less than 1% of all infections. Um, According to the World Health Organization, their data shows that about 2.4% of reported cases in China were children under the age of 10. So those are still, you know, if it's somewhere between 1% and 2.4%, it's still a, a pretty small case. And if we look at you know, cases of where children got critically ill, that's happening even less, like 0.2% of the time. China has yet to report any instances of a young child dying of the disease caused by this, you know, new novel coronavirus. So for the last, you know, number of weeks, as, um, you know, these cases have passed 100,000 globally, we're just seeing very few kids um, in in the case numbers. The interesting thing is that children are not necessarily not being infected. They are being diagnosed with COVID-19. They're just not getting as sick as some older people. Yeah. So for the last few weeks, there's kind of been this question of, you know, are kids not getting infected and that's why we're seeing the low case numbers or do they just have much more mild um, response to the virus? And so they're not showing up because they're not, you know, presenting symptoms that would, um, you know, allow them to get diagnosed. And so a new study came out um, last week. It was published to a preprint server. And instead of just looking at case data, it actually looked at contact tracing. So this is a process by which um, health officials will go out and find people who have been exposed to patients of COVID-19 and then track all of those people and monitor them and see if they get sick or not. And so that starts to build a a more detailed picture of something called the attack rate. So how often the virus actually spreads into people of different age groups when they've kind of been exposed to the same number of infected people. And so looking at that data, which was actually collected by the Chinese CDC in Shenzhen province, which is about 700 miles to the south of where the kind of epicenter of the outbreak was in Hubei, they were able to identify about 400 patients and about 1,200 people who'd been in close contact. And when they looked at that data, what they found was that the disease, the virus basically appears to infect children at the same rates that they infect adults. So between seven and 8% of the time that someone is exposed to an infected person, they themselves would get the disease. And that was true whether that person was in their 60s or if that person was under the age of 10. So this is the first time we're seeing data emerge that suggests that, in fact, kids can get the disease just as much as anyone else can. It's just that they appear to have much milder symptoms than adults and particularly people in the kind of elderly age cohort. So then that leads us to believe underlying health conditions seem to be a key factor in the severity of COVID-19 when, you know, it starts going crazy in their bodies. Also, their immune system, the response of the immune system seems to be a double-edged sword because it's trying to fight the virus, but it's also fighting the body itself, damaging healthy tissue sometimes. And other people have said, going back to the children, they don't have a lot of these underlying health conditions. Their lungs haven't been as going through uh, years and years of inflammation. And these little things could be helping children have these milder symptoms. So at this point, you know, these are, for the most part, hypotheses because we don't have the kind of experimental data that we would need to kind of prove these out. I'm sure those studies will be coming. But what you've talked about kind of relies on some older research on 
um, a related coronavirus, the coronavirus that causes SARS. Um, there was an outbreak of that in 2002 and 2003 in China. And so scientists who, you know, over the last decade or so have been studying SARS in the lab, what they have seen is that as mice get older and older, they have worse and worse symptoms and worse and worse outcomes um, with SARS. And because of the way that SARS, um, it has what's called kind of a biphasic pattern where you kind of have this big surge of symptoms right after infection when the virus is replicating heavily in the lungs. And so you get that fever, you get that cough, and then it dies down as the immune system kicks in. And then for patients who experience the worst symptoms, patients who often died, they kind of saw an uptick in symptoms that this time they you know, researchers believe it was not being caused by the virus itself, but by an immune system that had turned on and was kind of in overdrive and not able to turn itself off. And so their data from epidemiological studies of SARS patients, as well as um, lab animals that have been infected with SARS, has kind of built up this body of evidence that suggests that the immune response is as important in determining how severe someone's symptoms are with the SARS like coronaviruses as the virus itself. And so we have reason to believe that this new virus that causes COVID-19 may, um, you know, may provoke a similar, a similar set of circumstances in patients. And so that's why we're seeing these higher mortality rates and, and higher uh, set of severe symptoms in older patients. It's super important to understand why this is happening, why children aren't getting affected as seriously as some others. Because when it comes down to public health officials being confronted with these choices, you know, we keep hearing a lot about social distancing and closing down concerts and all this other stuff, closing schools down. Even children are being infected at similar rates as normal adults, but they're not showing the symptoms. So it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, do you shut down more schools? Do you keep kids out of bigger areas just because they might have it, but not be showing the same amount of symptoms? So it's important to understand what's going on here. To some extent, it's still a little bit of an open question just to what extent kids are involved in what's called onward transmission. So we don't really know right now the extent to which, you know, kids who are maybe experiencing mild symptoms are going out and spreading the virus further. You know, if they're not having a bad cough, you know, then they may not be shedding, you know, large amounts of virus on, on other people. So that's a place where ongoing research is going to be required to understand, you know, just how much kids are playing a role in spreading this disease. You know, n- now that we know that kids can get infected with it at the same rates as adults, that would suggest that, you know, closing schools is, you know, perhaps a more relevant uh, strategy than if than if kids weren't getting infected in the first place, but you know still don't understand exactly what some of the transmission dynamics are, and so I think the probably cautious approach would be to act as though they are you know vectors of of disease transmission. Um, but like we said, that's not something we know for sure at yeah. this point. Megan Multaney, staff writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.